6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Song of Songs with a session entitled, Marriage as God's Model of Intimacy. God's covenant with Israel is spoken this way in Isaiah 6, where God says, I'll spread my skirt over you, over the nation, putting his authority, his protection over it, and so forth. And the fringes on Levitical garments are an example of this all through the Torah. David's removal of Saul's hymn is a big deal in 1 Samuel 24. The Lord's hymn sought for healing in the woman with the issue of blood in, in Mark 14, Mark, Matthew 14, Mark 6, and Luke 8. The woman with the issue of blood pushes through the crowd if she can just touch the hem of his garment, because in her mind, that's where his authority lay. And so uh, on it goes. So Ruth and Boaz. So Ruth is requesting Boaz to exercise his right as a kinsman and assume responsibility as a kinsman, which has two elements, the land for Naomi and her as a bride. So she approaches Boaz. To he ask, she's asking him to fulfill the role of a goel, a kinsman redeemer. But there's a problem. This is where in the plot there's a, whoops, because there is a kinsman that's closer in kinsmanship than he is. And so we see if you pick the, if you're doing this as a movie, you've got maybe a, a Russell Crowe or someone as, as the, in the role of Boaz, and you've got maybe a Danny DeVita as the nearer kinsman, but he has a prior right. Boaz gives her six measures of barley to take home to Naomi. That's a code that you have to be Jewish to understand the code that he is telling Naomi that this guy, that he will not rest. See, seven is the, the seventh is the, the six is short of seven, that he will not rest until this is resolved. So he's telegraphing, and he realizes that Ruth is Gentile, but Naomi, being Jewish, would pick up on this, the six measures of barley as a code for Naomi that he will, and she, she interprets this in the next chapter. So we get to chapter four, which is the big climax here, and uh, Boaz confronts the nearer kinsman and says there's an opportunity here to do the kinsman part for Naomi. And he says, great, I'll do that. I'll buy the property for her. And that's a letdown if you're hoping for them, if you will, for Boaz and Ruth. But it turns out when he finds out there's also the issue of marrying Boaz, uh, marrying uh, Ruth is involved, he has to pass. Now that's good news for us because we're hoping to get Boaz and Ruth together. So he has to pass, and there's a, he symbolically yields his, his uh, um, requirement by giving a shoe. That was the, the way they conveyed the idea. Uh, the theory was that he she should be negotiating this and he would give her a shoe, and she would spit in his face for not doing it, and that would be the way it was done in ancient Israel. But Boaz is in her advocacy here. He is handling all this in any case, and the, the nearer kinsman yields his shoe. So Boaz, of course, steps up. This is his big opportunity. He was hoping to have the opportunity. He's a wealthy landowner. He has no problem getting the land back to Naomi, and he takes Ruth 
as a bride. And by the way, Ruth is a Moabitess, and that's against the law. But what the law can't do, grace can. And that's part of the lesson here. So he purchases the land for Naomi, and he purchases, literally purchases Ruth as his bride. That's a concept that's strange in our ears, but that's the way they did things. Now, as you have this big, at the end of the chapter 4, they have this big celebration. And during the celebration, somebody says something that you and I would think is, sounds like a toast at a wedding. It's actually a prophecy, and as you study it, it's a strange remark we want to take a look at. Now, something else I want to point out that reminds you from our tutorial here on hermeneutics. The Greek mind thinks of prophecy as a prediction and a fulfillment. Prophecy is a prediction, which leads to a fulfillment. That's the, the Gentile model. The Hebrew model is a little different. Prophecy is pattern. That's why we use types so much. And the whole book of, Luke, of uh, Ruth is a type of the kinsman redeemer, just as Genesis 22 was a type of the offer of Golgotha, if you will, and so on. So the goal is the kinsman redeemer, and he had four requirements if you're going to be a kinsman redeemer. He had to be a kinsman. He had to be able to perform. He had to be willing to perform. He might be able, but he would choose not to. That's his choice. So he had to be, he had to be a kinsman, member of the family. That's why Jesus had to be a man. Because when you get to uh, Revelation chapter 5, no man was found worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof. Ah, but the Lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed and so forth. So he had to be a kinsman, had to be able to perform and be willing to perform, and he must assume all the obligations. He couldn't just do the land, he had to do the Ruth thing too. And so Boaz is the Lord of the harvest in this whole picture, and he's the kinsman redeemer. That's why as we study the book of Ruth, and we could spend an hour on each chapter because there's so much packed in there that I'm just skipping over here lightly. And Boaz is obviously a type of Christ. Naomi is a type of Israel. And Ruth is the Gentile bride. And so we learn a great deal looking at this. Take some observations. In order to bring Ruth to Naomi, Naomi had to be exiled from the land. How interesting. How interesting. What the law could not do, grace did. And Ruth does not replace Naomi. Boy, that's a doctrinal issue we could talk about. Ruth learns of Boaz's ways through Naomi. Naomi does meets Naomi will meet Ruth. Excuse me. Yeah, Naomi meets Boaz through Ruth. And yet Ruth knows what to do from Naomi. Think that through, and how that interesting that is. And no matter how much Boaz loved Ruth. He had to await her commitment. She had to open the door by making that request. And it's Boaz, not Ruth, that confronts the nearer kinsman. It's supposed to be Ruth and no Boaz. Why? Because he's our advocate. He, inter he ever liveth to intercede for you and me. That's his full-time job right now is to intercede for you and me. Wow. Some final remarks. The book of Ruth is always read at the Feast of Shavuot in the Hebrew uh, calendar. How interesting it is that the book of Ruth is always read on the middle feast of the seven feasts of Moses, the one that speaks of the Feast of Pentecost, which also speaks prophetically of the birth of the church. Do you see the connection? What a coincidence. And I say you can't really understand Revelation 5 without understanding the book of Ruth. There's much more here. I'm just giving you the highlights. See, you and I are also the beneficiaries of a love letter that was written in blood on a wooden cross that was erected in Judea some 2,000 years ago. 
Something else kind of interesting, you start looking at structure, you begin to realize every detail in this tapestry is designed. From Adam to Noah was 10, uh, ten uh, people. And when you spell that out in Hebrew, it spells out the gospel. From Shem to Abraham, Abraham was the 10th after Noah. And Boaz was the 10th after Abraham. You see a pattern here? Interesting. The 10th man. Now it's interesting, David's lineage was prophesied in the book of Judges. We always have this idea when you get to Samuel, the people got restless and demanded a king, so God reluctantly gives them Saul. No, 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 no. You'll find David's genealogy in the book of Ruth. I'll come to that in a minute. You'll also discover, if you, when we get into the details of Genesis 38, encrypted in the Hebrew is David's genealogy. That's in the Torah. That's in the book of Genesis, long before Joshua, Judges, Samuel, etc. David's only prophesied in the time of the Judges in the book of Ruth. He was the 10th generation after Pharaoh's. What's that all about? I'll show you in a minute. You have to understand in the law, if you were illegitimate, that foreclosed your um, inheritance for 10 generations. That's a law in Deuteronomy uh, 23. You just need to know as a background item. At the big party celebrating Boaz and Ruth, finally making the deal here, there's a, what looks like a toast. It's actually a prophecy. Someone says, let thy house be like the house of Pharaoh's, whom Tamar bare unto Judah of the seed which the Lord shall give there of, of this young, young woman. Well, if you don't know the story, you say, gee, that's pretty nice. Thank you. If you know the story, how that Judah got tricked into having sex with his unwed his daughter-in-law, whose, whose husband had died, uh, he gets tricked, and the illegitimate offspring from that was the twins, Perez and Zara. Um, somebody said that in your wedding, you'd say, same to you, fella. May your house be like this bastard, whom Terah bare to Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give you. Uh, to understand what's really going on here, you have to be aware of the fact that a bastard will not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to his tenth generation shall he not enter, and so forth. Well, if you go from Perez or Pharez, down through Hezron, Ram, Abinadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, aha, Obed, Jesse, David, you discover David is the tenth generation. So this is really a prophecy that the tenth generation will be David. And that turns out that same... So we have Gentile brides as types, as something else we observe. We have, of course, Adam and Eve, Isaac and Rebekah, Joseph, Asenath, Moses and Zipporah, Simon and Rahab, Boaz and Ruth. These are Gentile brides. There's one missing here to make it a full seven. Which is the one that's missing? Christ in the church. And what's fascinating about these Gentile brides is they have no death recorded. And you can make something of that if you like. I, I think it's fascinating. I think it's a deliberate part of the design we observe in the text. The Holy Spirit is superintending the details here. Well, it's, we won't take a lot of time on the Israel as a wife of Jehovah. That is a, a Old Testament emphasis. Hosea 2 deals with that in depth. She's called a harlot in Ezekiel 16. She's widowed in Lamentations and also Isaiah 54. So these are idioms that are familiar to the Old Testament student and leads to that view in terms of that Israel, the nation, is regarded as the wife of Yodivave. But let's go on to the really the guts of this whole thing, and that's Paul's marriage manual in Ephesians 5. And we're going to take a, just a quick look at this. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 22, 
Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. As unto the Lord. See, God has ordained government even for the home, and that's God's government, for wives to submit themselves to the husbands. In submitting to the husband, the wife is submitting to the Lord. We find that all through the New Testament in 1 Corinthians, Colossians 3, Titus 2, 1 Peter 3. Eve usurped the place of Adam and introduced sin in the human race. You can't escape that. That's what Paul emphasizes to Timothy in that passage we looked at. It's interesting to observe through history that false cults are so often started by women. And uh, women, when they leave their appointed sphere, they can wreck a local church, they can break up a marriage, and can destroy a home. Nothing is more attractive than a woman fulfilling the role that God has assigned her. And uh, let's continue. Uh, he says in 1 Timothy 2, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence. It's the authority issue or not the teaching issue. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman who was being deceived was in transgression. That pattern is all through the New Testament. We need to understand that. You can't skate around that. And Adam was not deceived. So continuing in Ephesians 5, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. See the parallel God is continually drawing here between Christ and the church and the husband and the wife. He is her head. And back in Genesis 3, 16, remember, under the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. So it's, this is a consistency throughout the Bible. And so just as the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, as he is the savior of the body. Headship is not dictatorship. He loves, leads, guides, provides, protects, and cares for her. And that was echoed all through the Song of, uh, Song of Songs. That was his role. That's what, that's what he did diligently. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. There again, it's emphasized, the parallelism is emphasized. As the church is subject to Christ, is it absolutely. It's not an equal partner. It's subject to Christ and does not seek to nullify the role that God has ordained. That's in contrast to women's lib and all that sort of thing. There's another reason here that a Christian must not become unequally yoked with an unbeliever. It won't work. You're heading for problems. It's wrong for a believer to marry an unbeliever, but it's also wrong for two Christians to marry outside the will of God. That's the key. And sometimes even it may be God's will for a Christian to remain unmarried. That's something you have to deal with him. Husbands love, now he switches to husbands here. Husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Do you love your wife that much? Gave himself for it. That's what Christ did with the church. That's, that's what we are to do with our wives. Paul had much more to say to husbands than he did to wives. The husband will love his wife sacrificially, in verse 25, sanctifying her in verse 26 coming, and satisfying her in verses 28, 29, and 30. No, no wife would mind being subject to a husband who loves her as Christ loves the church. That's the footnote. Ooh, boy. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. Even as ye are clean because of the word in John 15, sanctify them through thy truth in John 17 and so on. That he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's what's so prominent about Song of Songs, that he 
Solomon always regarded her, he always saw her, regarded her as perfect without blemish. And that's the way Christ is going to present us to himself by imposing his righteousness on us. Sanctify means to be set apart. The wife is to be set apart. Any interference with this God-given arrangement is sin. And this is reinforcing all the lessons we had through Song of Songs. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Six times the word own, the word own is in these passages. God permitted polygamy in the Old Testament, but he didn't ever approve it. Let no man ever, ever hate his own flesh, but nourish it, cherish it, even as the Lord of the church. Love is the nourishment of the home. And the Spirit of God uses the Word, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to work in our lives. And for parallel passages to all of this, you can go to Colossians 3 for a similar lineup here. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones, and for this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. That was quoted, that's quoted three times in the New Testament. We echoed it, of course, from Genesis 2. And uh, it involves leaving as well as cleaving. It's often overlooked. A man's relationship to his parents is superseded by a higher loyalty to his wife. And once you grasp that, that should resolve a lot of in-law troubles. But this verse, just about the time you think you understand where Paul is going in this handbook, you get to this verse and you think, okay, I see where he's going. He throws you a curve. Just as you think you know where he's headed, you get this boomerang. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. His instruction on all this isn't just to us as a guide in marriage. He's flipping that over for us to get a clue as to the relationship between Christ and church. See how God is using the marriage all through the Bible to communicate the concept of intimacy. He reverses here the parallelism, focus on the church, as a, a, a marriage as a model to communicate his highest and most intimate truths. Now, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Here we have, interestingly enough, we simply have two rules, one for each. Two simple rules cutting through it all. One for each of you. So love his wife as himself. That's the husband. Love your wife supremely. That's your job, period. You love her wife supremely, period. End of paragraph. The wife see that she reverence her husband. A little different thing. Not, not, it's not symmetrical. Let your husband be in charge. Two rules. One for the husband, love your wife supremely, as Christ loved the church. For the wife, let your husband be in charge. He has the responsibility. You got a problem? Take it to the Lord. He'll unravel it. It's simple. Why can't we do it? Well, one last glimpse. Let's talk quickly about the bride of Christ. That's a, that's, we were talking about the mystical aspect of marriage. Uh, Christ is the head of the church. That's his preeminent. The precious of his people has been emphasized here. Where the apple of his eye, the crown of his glory, stones of the crown, ensigns, jewels, that, those are all idioms. And love for the church is all through. We don't have to emphasize that. And the church is sometimes referred to as his bride. Now that's interesting and has some qualifications. But let's back up to Genesis 3 again. We had the original creation. Everything we know about that creation is after Genesis 3, after that curse. And where the creation was divided into two parts. 
we know from particle physics as well as from the scripture, there's 10 dimensions. Four of them we directly understand. Length, width, height, the three spatial dimensions in time. Our particle physicists have discovered there are six others that we can't seem to get at directly. So we call this, these four dimensions, the physical world. The six dimensions we call the spiritual world, for lack of another word. And Paul, in Ephesians 3, mentioned that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes the knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Notice as Paul goes here, how many dimensions does he list there? Breadth, length, height, depth, and height. Paul, whether he realized it or not, was acknowledging a four-dimensional universe that took Einstein, the biggest discovery of 20th century science, was that we live in four dimensions, not three. Time is a physical property. And 21st century science is to understand these other six. But the effects of the fall. Randomness, entropy, is called the bondage of decay. When was that introduced? Was it introduced when the universe was fractured at the, in Genesis 3? The separation of the 10 into 4 and 6? The separation of the physical and the spiritual? Redemption involves more than just man. We know that there's a new heavens and a new earth. Entropy in Scripture is that they shall perish, we shall grow as a garment. The earth shall grow old like a garment. It's going to wear out, in other words. Heaven and earth will pass away, we're told, many times is entropy itself, if it was introduced in randomness, was chaos, was it introduced in Genesis 3 as a basic physical force? It's interesting, apparently it's going to be repealed because Romans 8.21, because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. So we're going to now just take, with that background, get a glimpse of the bride of Christ. We hear that term all the time. When we want to see the bride of Christ, we see what? Not a person, a city. Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. See, just as Solomon prepared a place for Shulamit, and as any Jewish bridegroom prepares a place for his bride, so our bridegroom has been preparing a place for us. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and he shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away all the tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death there, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. He said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, the unbelieving, and the abominable, and the murderers, and whoremongers, and saucers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. That was a few chapters ago, in other words. And talked with me, saying, Come hither. I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. Wow, okay. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. This isn't built on the earth, it's descending from heaven, from God. Having the glory of God, her light was like a, 
unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And it goes on for the rest of the chapter describing the foundations and all the details. And we discover that uh, it goes beyond imagining. The ancient artist Doris had a view that's pretty classic. Uh, others more, more sophisticated recognize it somehow in hyperspace. And uh, we see other renderings of this as people try to reconcile the language of the Greek in chapter 21 of Revelation into physics we can understand. And I think they're wasting their time because we're dealing with hyperspaces, spaces of more than uh, the four dimensions we're aware of. And uh, we know that a four-dimensional cube can be unraveled in three dimensions. And even Salvador Dali recognized the implications of that when he did Corpus Christi of the crucifixion, that what really is going on there isn't the three dimensions that we see uh, uh, typically on the cross. There's more going on in the other dimensions that are far more relevant than the ones we can absorb here. And that's also true of our marriages. That's also true of our walk with him. And with that, let you and I stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. And Father, we would seek above all other that your purpose be accomplished in each of our lives, that you would help each of us grow in grace and the knowledge of our bridegroom, our shepherd king, our redeemer. We do pray, Father, that we might become more effective husbands and wives, that in so doing that we would please you, that we would accomplish that which you have called us to. We do pray, Father, that we, through all of this, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit and through the gift of your Son, that we might be more pleasing and more fruitful to you as we commit ourselves without any reservation whatsoever into your hands. In the name and to the glory of our bridegroom, our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Song of Songs. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.